0: Welcome everyone to season two, episode six of the On Path podcast. In this episode, I speak with Janine Heller. Janine is an executive coach who works with senior managers on becoming the most effective and confident leaders they can be. Our conversation begins by exploring how she ended up studying computer science and how the many internships she did shaped her career. We also talk about her experience in starting and later selling her own tech company, all with no formal study of business. We also discuss how she came to find her calling, being a business coach, and how that feels fundamentally different to our other roles in the past. I really enjoyed this conversation and hope you do too. As always, thank you for listening. Welcome, Janine, to the On Path podcast. Thank you for joining.
1: Well, thanks for having me
0: two years into the pandemic. And I'm wondering how is life the same or different for you than it was two years ago?
1: It's interesting. I've talked about this with people over the last year. I'm glad the pandemic hit when I wasn't in my 20s, because I think I would have felt a lot more socially isolated, whereas now I feel like I can modify my life and adapt without feeling like I'm missing too much. So. Obviously, my day-to-day is much more within my own house, but I've worked from home for many years on and off, so I knew already how to structure my day. Uh, My husband and I get along great. Nothing like a pandemic to help you see that you've married the right person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think I, um, I'm actually a lot more active. I go out more I, in terms of just walking, just to get out of the house. I walk a lot more than I used to.
0: And I guess, well, ha- having already been working from home, you were probably much better equipped and set up than, than most folks.
1: Yeah, I have some friends who have challenges with when they're bored, they, they go immediately over to the refrigerator. I think a lot of people are doing that, whereas I already have a routine where, you know, I just, I, I, I don't, I'm not tempted by that. I, I now have a structure of work day within my own house, and I'm really grateful for that.
0: Great, great. And uh, we're going to talk about, about your background and, uh, and your career, your life to date, but maybe just to kind of set the context, where are you based right now?
1: I'm in San Francisco.
0: Right. All right. So uh, let's let's rewind back to uh, back to your childhood, and maybe you could start by telling us about how it was growing up in a half Jewish, half Puerto Rican household.
1: <laughs> well, when you're a kid, it's all you know. So there wasn't anything strange about it to me. Or I didn't think it was an unusual contrast. It was very fun. I loved the variety. I loved that on my dad's side, the Jewish side. People were a little more intellectual, a little quieter. I didn't have a lot of extended family on that side. On my mom's side, the Puerto Rican side, it was super colorful. I had thousands of cousins or it felt like it, you know, Christmas was hordes of kids running around and knocking over the Christmas tree. Uh, And then it was dance time and it was multi-generational. Everybody get up and dance and play instruments. And it was very kinetic and loud. I loved it. It was very, very fun. It it wasn't until later that I realized, oh, this isn't how everybody's family is. And it also made me realize that it was just one of many contrasts uh, in my life.
0: Did you find that you celebrated kind of holidays from both sides?
1: Yeah, we did celebrate Christmas and Hanukkah and Passover and Easter. And when you're a kid, that's just a bonanza. Right, that's super fun and i remember being six or seven and somebody asking me well are you gonna really be more jewish or christian and i was very clear about wanting to be jewish because after services they served cookies and that was a real that was a clincher for me
0: yeah yeah uh, at that age that is like uh, that is the driving factor <laughs> so uh for university you went to brown And you studied computer science. And I'm wondering, was that something you decided well in advance? Or or was it something you kind of stumbled into?
1: I had always been very math and science minded. Although one of the other contrasts in my life is that I was also always very artistic. And I wasn't sure if I was going to be studying art, studio art, or something more in the, the STEM field. In fact, at Brown, if I had taken just two more art history classes, I would have had a double major in studio art and computer science. But I started out as a math major. In fact, I started my college career at Wellesley, which is an all-women's college outside of Boston. But it was socially a little bit um, unbalanced, I thought, without any men on campus. And because of the proximity to Boston, everybody would just leave campus on the weekends, go into town, and so it, it wasn't the kind of college experience I was really looking for. And when I stumbled on computer science at Wellesley, I felt like I really wanted to pursue that. And their department was pretty small. So I started looking at other programs. I applied to transfer and I ended up at Brown, partly because their program was amazing and partly because it's the only place that accepted me for my transfer application, So. Okay. <laughs> you know, if Stanford and Yale didn't want me, I was quite happy to go to Brown. Um,
0: yeah, well, that, well, that's a that's a pretty good place to go to. Yeah. <laughs> and now, so when you say you stumbled into computer science, like, tell us a bit more about that. Was it a professor who kind of uh, introduced you to it, or
1: it was actually a professor at Wellesley that I had for one of my math courses? That was such a turnoff <laughs> that I decided that I was not going to be a math major. And I had already signed up for a computer science course, just because it looked interesting, and I realized that I actually really liked it. It it very much appealed to me, and since I knew at that point I wasn't going to pursue math, and I liked the practicality of it, I thought, hey, you know, I can use college as a vocational school and and turn this into a job immediately upon graduating. So it appealed to me in a lot of different ways.
0: And so when when you know you were thinking ahead to already to your career to your job, did you have in mind that you would be a software engineer or what, what did you have in mind?
1: Yeah, I thought I would just be a software engineer and in fact, in between transferring from Wellesley to Brown, I took a year off and I actually had two different software engineering very junior but software engineering jobs and I really liked it and in fact, it was sort of assumed that after graduating, I would go back to one of those companies and start working full-time. That's not what happened, but that was sort of the, the path that I was on.
0: Yeah. And, and at that stage, was there kind of a, a type of company that you um, aspired to join? Like, did you want to join a large tech company or, or did you want to start your own venture?
1: Oh, I did not even think about starting my own company at that point. And I was pretty open to whatever opportunities were there. The, the companies that I worked at over the summers and during my year off were small. They were startups, yeah. uh, but I was open to whatever there was.
0: Yeah. And, and do you feel that that experience of working at those companies really helped shape what you got out of your college education?
1: Yeah, because immediately I could see the application and the practicality, and I could see where what I was learning was directly related to what I would be doing after after college.
0: Yeah, okay. So at that, at that point, you already felt like you were contributing in a meaningful way, even though you were just kind of interning for summer.
1: Yeah, and, and actually I was getting paid. So I thought, hey, I've I'm I'm already started. Um, yeah. At the same time, I was also working at an art gallery and at a uh, catering company. So I was doing all kinds of things. I, you know, I was in my late teens and I was full of energy and open to pretty much everything, but I felt happy that I had something in mind for when I graduated.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about your art. I know you're an avid painter and actually, well, the listeners aren't going to be able to see this, but uh, right behind you is a is a beautiful painting. Is that something that, that you created?
1: Yes. I painted this a uh, few years ago. It was actually my first attempt to paint in oil. I usually painted in acrylics, but uh, I switched to oil and I loved it. This is a pretty large piece and I really enjoyed that. So I've been doing more oil than than acrylic. I used to also do a lot of printmaking, etching yeah. and silk screening, but this works for me now.
0: Yeah. And and the art history classes you took at Brown, um, tell us a little bit more about that.
1: I did mostly studio work, which is why I never walked away with the degree. I, I can't right. even remember now what the, some sort of survey yeah. class or two that I took in art history. I didn't really focus on any particular period style. Mostly, I just like getting my hands dirty.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you transferred to Brown, you studied computer science, you you had the opportunity to do two internships. So you graduate, you have your computer science degree in hand. What happens next?
1: Well, the thought that I was going to go back to one of these companies that I've been working for over the summers actually really depressed me. I thought, wait a minute, I can picture the cubicle. I've already been doing that. Is is my life over? It just felt like such a downer. And I thought, no, I'm launching myself into my life. I want an adventure. So I had actually, during my senior year, started looking around for different things that I could do. And I saw a notice on the computer science department bulletin board that said computer science teachers wanted in Malawi, see Dean whatever for information. And I thought it was Malawi. I thought it was somewhere in Asia. Went home and looked at the map. realized it was in East Africa. But I had already decided, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. And I got in touch with the dean who had been there on a Fulbright, was still in touch with the university, and occasionally looked for resources at Brown and I signed up and I went knowing absolutely nothing about what was gonna be uh, waiting for me on the other side. In fact, I thought I was signing up for an assistant lecturer position. When I got there, it turns out I had 200 students of my own, no textbooks, no curriculum, and I was 22. And it was like, okay, Go. <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow, well, I guess that's uh, straight into the deep end with, uh, with, with teaching and how, how did you adapt to that?
1: I was pretty stressed out, but I got to work and yeah. I had a lot of energy and I was excited and everything was new and strange and amazing. And I put together a curriculum. I just had to stay one step ahead of the classes. It was funny. I'd never taught before. And in fact, for my very, very first lecture, I had written everything out the night before and I got yeah. in front of the class and I read through it and I looked up and seven minutes had passed. <laughs> I had a whole, had a whole hour <laughs> to fill. Yeah. So I, I winged it. I It took me a little while to find how to approach it but I did. It was really, really good preparation for later on uh, as I was coaching people to understand what it's like to go into a situation and feel like you're out of your depth.
0: Yeah, it sounds like an incredible life experience. I mean, um, professionally, of course, like doing something you've never done before, but then I guess also just moving to a whole new country that you knew nothing about before.
1: Well, one of the things that I realized was unusual about how I grew up is that there was the multicultural aspect of our household, but we also moved all the time. We moved every two to three years. My father went back to college, undergraduate when I was about three, to eventually become a doctor. So there was undergraduate, med school, internship, residency, starting a practice, and there was a move associated with each one of those changes. I was used to feeling like wherever I was, was home, that the world was where I lived and walking into a new school every couple of years and starting afresh was another one of those types of experiences of you're just getting dropped in the deep end and you're going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I'm an extrovert. I ended up loving it. Uh, I, coincidentally, my husband also moved a lot when he was growing up and he's an introvert and he hated it. Okay. But, yeah. <laughs> but for for me it was not so crazy that I would end up in another country, I suppose. Mm. It wasn't it was an adventure. there was so much that was different and strange. but I also felt okay about that.
0: Wow. And so how, how long uh, did that experience last? How long were you in the lobby?
1: I was there for two years. And it was interesting. I was thinking about this. It was at a time when there wasn't much in the way of internet or social media. I was really removed from my friends and family in the States. There were phone calls, but mostly that was my whole world. Whereas now, if I were there, I would be posting pictures, I would be having Zoom chats, I would still feel a lot more connected, but really Malawi swallowed me up for those two years. And I really loved it. I was, I was young enough that I felt like, hey, I'm super open to this experience. I'm just a drop of water in the river and we'll see where it takes me.
0: Mm, yeah. yeah, that's really interesting that you bring that up. I guess in, in one sense, that made it a much more immersive experience but on the other hand, of course, you kind of lose touch, especially, I mean, not not so much with family, but with your uh, broader circle of friends and, uh, you know, net, do you prefer the way you had it or would you would you prefer to have kind of like that constant connection?
1: I have no idea because the experience I had is what I had and I loved yeah. it. And the yeah. friendships I made there, because that was, that's your whole world. The friendships yeah. I made there were incredibly deep. Mm-hmm. And still exists to this day and the way I had to find my place there, I think is really different than what it would be now. I don't feel like I would have the same kind of need to really do things on my own. I would have had a lot more support, which I think yeah. in a lot of ways would have been nice, but I think this experience would have been different.
0: Yeah. And have you been back to the lobby since?
1: I've been back twice. Okay. And, but it's been a while now, actually, since I was back. There have been a lot of changes, but it's still, it's a place that has a part of my heart and it's, it's really lovely there. Um, mm-hmm. So it was the times I went, uh, I brought my, once I brought my husband and blew his mind. And then once I went by myself and just visited friends and it, it's really very beautiful there. It's also where I really got into hiking because the town I lived in was at the base of a, 3,000 foot massif. And okay. that's that's where I learned to just set out and follow paths and go straight up a mountain for a few hours and enjoy the, the nature. And I, my second year there, I got a dog and I would hike with the dog. And that's when I realized, oh, we're surrounded by jackals and baboons because my silly dog would go flush them out whereas before hiking by myself everybody was quiet and I wasn't bothering anybody
0: <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. wow well, yeah and I guess fun. even 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 that is such a different experience today right because today you have a, a maps app and like probably have a much better sense of where you are at any given point in time
1: yeah it you know even learning the language it's a Bantu language it's called Chechewa and I'm pretty good with languages i spoke some Spanish as I was growing up. I think that helps your brain open up to different types of languages when you hear a different language when you're young. So I'm pretty good with languages, but I have to say Chechewa was a challenge. It has 13 different noun classes. So instead of just having male, female, neutral, like some European languages, there's 13. So you could get really stranded in the middle of a sentence. And there were no online resources because there was no online world yet. So it was pretty tough. I think that would have been an interesting thing to have is that kind of resource to -hmm. to take language courses and learn stuff and practice. I would have liked that, I think.
0: Yeah, great. So two years in Malawi, you had all these incredible life experiences. uh, And what happened next?
1: My contract was up. I was ready to go back to the States. And that's when I resumed what I thought my original path would be. I worked for a software company as a software engineer. I played a lot of ultimate Frisbee in the Boston area. Our company had an ultimate team that was part of this 40 team corporate ultimate league in the Boston area. And I met a really cute guy on the team who would be <laughs> my husband yeah. um, and the company was a startup and it got bought by Hewlett Packard. Things really changed. And my boyfriend and I looked at each other and said, not happy here. How about you? Nope. Why don't we both look for another job? And if someone gets an offer, they can talk the other person into going with them. And he got a job offer out here in California at Digital and San Francisco. He said, how about? And I said, yep. So we moved out here. I ended up also working at Digital initially. But that was interesting because we worked together again, right? That was our second company working together. But we really learned how to set boundaries. And we had this airport rule. We would drive down, and digital was about 45 minutes south of us. We would drive down, and we couldn't talk about work until after we passed the airport. Then we could talk about work. <laughs> yeah. And on the way home, we could talk about work until the airport, and then we couldn't talk about work. Yeah. And it really served us well, learning to create these boundaries. And at the time, San Francisco was not a tech hub. It was Silicon Valley. And we loved coming back to the city where our friends were artists and massage therapists and musicians. And it wasn't until a few years later where we started to hear people talk about their startups and their websites and their projects and so forth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And and then at one point you started a company of your own uh, with, with a couple of friends And you actually did this without any formal business training. So yeah. Tell us a bit more about that.
1: Well, we were super smart and we were super stupid and we didn't know what we didn't know. And in some ways that was great because we didn't know how hard it would be. Mm -hmm. It was a real garage band. When we started, we were in a big loft space in the mission district of San Francisco, you know, there was a black lab with a red handkerchief around his neck. One of my partners was in a jazz band, and his band would practice in the space, sometimes during business hours. You know, it was um, the only thing I think we were missing was a climbing wall. (laughs) But we had the rest of it. But it was a talented group of people, and we complemented each other well. And I was the last person to join. And it took a little bit of time for us to gel, but at a certain point, we realized we've got something pretty cool here. Let's mm-hmm. let's try and make this real. We brought on a lot more people. We figured out what we were doing. I think not having the business background served us well in certain ways. I mean, when you're in your 20s and early 30s, your optimism just will not be crushed.
0: Yeah.
1: But... Without the business background, it was also very, very difficult. I felt like uh, we made a lot of mistakes. It took us a long time to figure certain things out with partnerships and contracts and business direction and stuff like that. Things that I think would have been shortcut if we had had more formal training. Mm-hmm. But it was a really incredible experience and it was a real roller coaster ride. And I think without the formal business training, the ups and downs were a little bit more magnified for us.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you you went on to to sell that company. And, you know, I, I think for for founders, I mean, that's a, that's a major milestone, right? At the same time, I imagine it's a very difficult experience because it's something you created from scratch. So how did that feel? What was going through your mind when uh, when you made that decision?
1: Well, we ran the company for seven years. And at a certain point, the internet became a factor and it hadn't been early on. So we realized that our original business model was becoming quite stale. And we, I guess all the cool kids are calling it pivoting. So at some point, we pivoted and changed our business model and figured out what we were doing. and, And we realized, okay, you know what, we are now just so bootstrapping, we really need investment. So we got some investment, and then that led us to, hey, now we're really growing. You know what? Let's think about our exit strategy. But really, the idea of selling a company, even if you think you're going to do that from day one, it just doesn't happen overnight. So it was a years-long process. And right before it happens, you're going through all this due diligence. And since I was running operations, (laughs) that fell on me. It was a huge amount of tedious work pulling out contracts and financials and all of that. And I was completely immersed in it. So when the day actually came that we closed and we sold the company, I was a little bit taken by surprise. I'm like, that's it. (laughs) So it's happening now. And I remember it was like 10 o'clock at night. We finally had the lawyers in the room on both sides and the fax went through. We were using faxes at the time. And I came home stunned with a big check in my hand. And I, it took me literally a month to process that we had actually sold the company. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, What happened though was interesting because the company that sold us, uh, sorry, that bought us understood our product, but they didn't understand our company culture and what the founders wanted and what the people wanted. And within a couple months, the, the new company decided to move everyone to San Diego and nobody wanted to do that. And they wanted to then pivot again into another space that nobody wanted to do. And it really did feel like somebody had taken our baby away mm-hmm. from us and turned yeah. it into something we didn't like. So it was yeah. a really interesting experience letting that go, but we were happy. It it was really a, a fantastic outcome after all our work. Yeah. So yeah. it was, it was okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, congratulations on that. That is, that is a, that is a real success from, as, as we all know, like most new ventures don't lead to anything. It really says something that, uh. That you were able to to successfully exit. Um, were there moments when you felt like, you know, either early on or maybe later that you just felt like this is not going anywhere?
1: Oh, sure. every other Wednesday, I mean the, <laughs> the ups and downs are very extreme in a startup, especially when you have not had the experience <laughs> of seeing what's possible, knowing how to weather the storm. Things initially always felt very catastrophic when they went wrong. Over the years, we realized, okay, this is going to be fine. The partners would just not take payroll for a few (laughs) months or weeks if we needed to. We, We found ways. We were very, very, very adaptable. We were very committed to what we were doing. Yeah. But... You know, we did whatever we could to survive and to succeed, but there were times when we were variously burned out, sick of it, despondent, what have you, yeah. <laughs> you know, but then the next day something amazing would happen and we were re-energized, so <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. there you and go. I, so you, you mentioned not having like the formal business experience and, you know, of course, these that whole side of the business, like the go-to-market side, like actually the product, finding product market fit and so on, but there's also the people side, right? And, um, you know, hiring people, leading people, is that something that you already had experience with or did it come naturally, or was it a major challenge?
1: Although I was always very technical, I always had a soft skill side. I'm very social. I have decent instincts with people. And even as a software engineer, I got quickly into project management and people Mm -hmm. management. And when we had the company, I ran operations which included HR and all the hiring and all of the managing people's paths and expectations and all of that And, and bringing some sanity to what is normally a very chaotic environment. So a lot of that came very naturally to me. However, it would not have been bad to be more schooled in some best practices. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the things that I've really learned more formally since then and even train other leaders, communication, difficult conversations, accountability, all those things. I made up what was in my toolbox at that time, but later I did. Actually, more formalized the tools that I had.
0: Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think that provides a nice segue for talk about what you what you currently do. You're an executive coach, and with coaching, you say that you found your calling. What what makes it your calling?
1: It's the first role where I feel like I am firing on all cylinders. It takes every part of me. It's It's something that uses my business background, my management background, my intuition with people, and it uses my whole experience growing up, all this multiculturalism, all these different places I worked, even the fact that when I was young, we were very, very poor. I lived in row homes outside of Baltimore and Philadelphia, and we were on food stamps. But as my father progressed through his career development, we then moved to a little middle class house, then a nice house. And finally, the big house on the hill, where I lived for a year before being shipped off to college. But even that aspect of having a different path and not having the pedigree, I think that you feel like, well, maybe you should have that for leadership or a senior position. I really learned in my life, I completely internalized the fact that there are millions of valid and interesting ways to be as a person. And those are the things that people should not shy away from, that there are so many messages we get about how you should be, images we get on TV Mm -hmm. or the way people portray themselves in an office environment. And you feel like, oh, I have to hide this quirk that I have or I can't just be who I am is completely counter to what I truly believe about people and the world. And so this is a role where I get to put all of that to use. And I absolutely love it.
0: And so there was actually kind of a a transition phase between when you started thinking about coaching and then when you actually went all in, right? And so what were the in-between steps?
1: Well, at the time, my husband and I had moved to France. Um, We decided that we were just ready for a change. It's funny, we both had developed these rhythms in our lives, moving all the time, that every two to three years was time for a change. After seven or eight years in the same spot in San Francisco, we were getting pretty itchy, and it took us a minute to realize it's just that the timer went off. And it was time for a change. And so we started to think about what was possible. We had some good contacts in France, a little starter pack of friends. And we thought we spoke the language. (laughs) We we went over there. Um, I continued to, at that time I was consulting in business operations for tech companies and I just held on to my clients. My husband is also in tech. So he had some clients there. And my desire for novelty had been reawakened by, by moving and having all these new experiences again in, in another country. It was funny, though, I should mention, when I went to Malawi, I was very open to everything. Mm-hmm. When I, we moved to France, I was in my 40s. And I remember saying to my husband, if I can't dial this in, I'm going home. Like, I'm I'm not open to absolutely everything. I want my life to have a little bit more, I want a little more control over this. But we went there, and I was really in a very novelty-seeking mode again. And I realized as I was consulting that I had been doing operations in tech for a long time, and I was very comfortable, but it wasn't exciting. And I wasn't that psyched about the... Infrastructure and process that I was helping my clients put in place, but I was interested in how they were growing. And I realized I'm helping them in the way I wish I had been supported Mm -hmm. when I was on my own, when I had no wingman or mentor or or anybody. And that was the seed that got planted. When I came back to the States, I did take an in house VP of operations job, but the seed had been planted. And Mm -hmm. when I had When I moved on from that, went back to consulting, I realized I really need to check out this coaching thing. Mm. And I learned as much as I could about it, realized this is great, drank the Kool-Aid, did my program. And so I've been coaching now for about nine years.
0: And so another thing I want to ask you is so many of the folks you coach are are executives. So they're managers of managers. Um, And I'm wondering. How is leadership different at that level than coaching line managers, or or is there not really a meaningful difference?
1: When you are an individual contributor, you are occupied with your to-do list. You have a lot of stuff to do, you cross it off, and at the end of the day, you often have something concrete that you can point to and say, I did that. When you start to manage people, you still have a to-do list, but it's more about the team and how they're doing. And as you move up into the layers of the organization, your focus goes from your to-do list, to the team, to the organization, to the overall business. And you need to be thinking at those levels as you change roles. You also need to realize that your impact is going to be less concrete. And it's something that people find odd initially, that they realize, well, I worked hard all day, but I don't have anything to point to. You have to start making that transition in your mind of my value is the fact that things could have sucked way worse if I hadn't been there to help provide air cover or resources or make decisions. And you have to start to change the way you understand what your value is and what your impact is.
0: And I'm curious, when do people come to you? Do they come to you at mo- like in moments of crisis? Do they come to you when things are going really well?
1: I really have people coming to me at all different phases. But I would say that the core of my business is people who have just been promoted or about to move into a new role. Mm -hmm. they've got a new job, their dream job, or they're about to enter the C-suite or whatever it is. And they're super excited, but they don't want to screw it up. Mm -hmm. So that's really been my focus. And I think that those are the most exciting engagements I have with clients because their energy is there. They're coming from a place of optimism rather than fear, rather than, Hey, I screwed up or I just lost my job. These people are coming from a place of absolute excitement but they don't want to walk into that school on the first day without having somebody to walk with them and maybe show them the ropes and partner with. I really partner with my clients. It's it's very different from consulting where I had to have answers, I had to tell people what to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I actually when I first started learning about coaching it was really a shock to me to realize this isn't about telling people what to do. Mm -hmm. Consultants have the answers, but coaches have the questions. And it's really up to me to help people see things and figure out what to do on their own. And I was actually outraged when I found out that I was not to be telling people what to do. (laughs) So people come to me when they need a partner to walk into a situation that's new Mm -hmm. and where they might be out of their depth but they don't want to be flailing around. They want to hit the ground running.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's quite a shift from the consulting mindset that you had just come from.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And in your experience now doing this for almost 10 years, like how does it actually look like a successful partnership? How often are you, are you meeting with your clients?
1: So I work with my clients every other week. Mm-hmm. We, we, we work together it really is a gap analysis is how I approach it. We start out by really looking at what makes a person tick. What is their oddity and their wonderfulness and their uniqueness? And, you know, I'm super straightforward, right? I'm a techie, I'm not very kumbaya. I, you know, just kind of want to tell it like it is so That exercise can be really interesting for people to really look at who they are and what they really care about and what really makes them tick. And then we look at where they want to go and we Mm -hmm. set a goal. Now, that also is something we examine because sometimes people think they want to do something that really isn't what they want to do. And they realize they've been sabotaging themselves all along because they actually don't want to be working 70 hour weeks or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Um, So we look at the goal and we then basically walk through that gap and say, hey, What are the strengths you already have that you can put to use? What are the strengths you have you don't even know are strengths? What Mm -hmm. are the beliefs you have about yourself or the role or other people that might not be serving you well? And then sometimes it's just straight skills development, right? What else do we have to add to their toolbox to make sure that they are performing well? But there's a really nice arc to the work where we get to know each other, we start to see what's things are about, we get insights, we start to put strategies into place. Uh, There might be resistance at a certain point of getting out of someone's comfort zone. But I really push people, I hold them accountable, because I believe them when they say they want something. And also, I can see their success sometimes before they can, because they've been doing this a long time. And the number one factor in whether someone is going to get where they want to be, is their engagement and desire, and their willingness to step out of their comfort zone, and to really look at themselves, and be open to what we're doing, and to mm-hmm. put in the work? People have homework in between our sessions; they have to try <laughs> stuff out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, it's usually the initial engagement is around six months, but there are people I've been working with for years. We uh-huh. we hit a goal we examine, we reset, we set a new goal, and we move towards that. Yeah. It's, really, it's really wonderful to be partnering with such amazing people and to see them, you know, there are people that I feel like, wow, you know, you could run the world. I'm just so mm-hmm. impressed, you know? And, <laughs> and the, yeah. they have to do all the hard work. Uh, for me, the work <laughs> is not that hard. It's super enjoyable, um, yeah. but watching them some people really hit the coaching process like a springboard, you know, mm-hmm. and head off into the stratosphere, and that's just what gets me up in the morning.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I can imagine that's incredibly rewarding to see people's transformation over the course of uh, months or or even years. And it sounds like you've really found your your calling with with executive coaching, uh, with executive coaching, and you you also. F- figured out the way to transition from from where you were. Um, But I wanna ask you the same question I asked you about your startup, and I'm sure the answer is yes, all the time, but you know, were there moments when you just thought this is not working out? I mean, this is about your calling, but it's also like you're running a business, right? It's not easy.
1: I love that question because I never doubted that this is what I wanted to do, but I absolutely had moments where it was difficult getting this business to where I wanted it to be. And the reason is, I wasn't following the lessons that my clients were learning, which is figure out who you really are and stick to that. So when I first started coaching, uh, I didn't exactly know how to market myself as a coach. Consulting Mm -hmm. was easy. I had a lot of long-term clients. I had a big network. I just never really was, there wasn't much hustle there. But as a coach, I was really starting from scratch. And I looked around at other coaches and saw what they were doing. I thought, well, I should try that. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I was going to be super corporate, maybe even try healthcare industry. It's like, what was I doing? And of course, that never landed. None of that stuff, because it didn't resonate. You know, someone who's senior in the healthcare industry meets me, there's not going to be much of a connection there. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to be someone I wasn't. And it wasn't until I got... Duh! You're a techie. You work with people in these high-velocity, uh, somewhat sarcastic environments where you know people have a certain approach to things, and you know it's like I'm dyed in the wool techie. Like, why aren't I working with those people? So it took me a while to realize that. Um, the other thing I didn't know is. I'm very much, I like to do all kinds of things. I have Mm -hmm. my hands and, you know, I like to paint, but I like to, you know, be more in a STEM type of environment. I love all these different things. So I start my company and of course, I think I have to do everything by myself. Mm -hmm. And that was a mistake. I'm not. I don't have a background in sales and marketing that should be outsourced. But I tried for a while to do all these things and to learn. I like learning. So I was like, Hey, I'm going to figure out how to be the best marketer ever. It's like, really? I don't think you are. And guess what? I didn't. So, um, there were a lot of things I had to learn to let go of and to just focus on my strengths. And, gee, does that sound familiar? Because that's kind of the lesson (laughs) that all my clients are learning every day. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Wow. It it took a while. (laughs) Yeah. And now it's almost almost 10 years in. If you could go back and just give one piece of advice to yourself 10 years back when you were just getting started, what would it be?
1: It's going to be great. It's it's just going to be great, and those two things I said. Just really be true to yourself, and don't try to do the things that don't fit in your zone of genius. Just focus on that and lean into that more, and it's going to be really fun.
0: Cool. Well, well thank you so much, Janine. I'm I'm really thankful to to john for introducing us and uh maybe just as a closing question is there um anything you would recommend listeners take a look at or uh, yeah just anything you want to point them towards
1: i don't know i i i don't really have <laughs> i don't really have a recommendation i mean i have specific things with that i work on with my clients particular particular books or resources, but I think for the general Mm -hmm. audience, I think what they should look at is just how awesome they are and be okay with that. It's, you know, we've all got quirks, we've all got our things, but welcome to the human race and and let's celebrate it. I think it's a boring world when we all try to be a certain way that Mm -hmm. is just doesn't necessarily fit us Like, let's Mm -hmm. all just be a little weirder and a little truer to that. and, And let's just have a little bit more fun with it. The other thing is, if you think about what's happening with diversity and inclusion and the mindset of Gen Z people, it's about really understanding variety and valuing it and caring about that. And I love that. I love seeing that. I love that there's now a lot more sensitivity to hey, there are a lot of different ways you can be. And we don't have to all be these cookie cutter types. And we don't have to live our lives a certain way. We don't have to get up at all exactly the same time. And we have to live in exactly the same place and think the same thoughts. I feel like there is this moment in time where that is becoming a lot more mainstream than it ever has been. And I'm really happy about that.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much, Janine, for taking the time to share your experience with us.
1: Thank you. It was really enjoyable talking with you. appreciate it.
0: As always, thank you very much for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate a rating and review in your podcast app. Thank you and see you next time.